Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. I honor you tonight in a, in a true and a living way, Lord, that you would relate with us. We pray, Father, that you would uh, clarify our minds. We ask, Lord, that you'd quicken our bodies. We ask, Lord, that you would stir up thanksgiving and joy and gratitude within us and that you'd give us a hearing heart to be able to uh, not only express our, our praise, but also to hear your voice, Lord, in your word. So be here in our midst tonight. We invite you now, Lord, receive this praise. I ask, Father, that you would uh, just hear our song, that you would give us boldness to sing out to you, Lord, as we, as we just acknowledge you, Lord, in your goodness. So be here with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thy 
of solid gold like a vow that is tested like a covenant of old your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today
cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree body bound and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah
Lord, we just we thank you for this time when we can come together and praise you and worship you. And I pray that your spirit would be here, that you would be pleased with the songs that we sang, and that you would speak to us through Pastor Nick. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've got some announcements for you. Good evening, and welcome to Calvary Chapel, Hudson Valley's midweek service. We're so happy you could join us. If you are joining us for the first time, we would love to connect with you. Please fill out a welcome card located in the back of the seat in front of you. You may drop it off in one of our tithing boxes or to an usher. If you are joining us in person, we ask that you please silence your cell phones at this time. Before we get into today's message, we want to go over some weekly announcements with you. VBS will be running through August 9th to August 13th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. We are taking ages four years old to the fifth grade. We are still looking for extra volunteers to help be crew leaders and for needed food donations. Visit the VBS table located in the church lobby to see more information on volunteering and for needed food items. The Women's Ministry will be continuing their summer series Bible study on Tuesday, August 10th at 7 p.m. in the Solid Ground Cafe. Our very own Lori D. Champlain will be sharing. This session's theme will be peaches. Visit our Women's Ministry table located in the church lobby for more information. We are excited to announce that we will be having a night of worship and baptisms on Sunday, August 29th at 5 p.m. here at Calvary Chapel. If you would like to be baptized, you can sign up on our church website or in the church lobby. Follow the footsteps of the Apostle Paul on a journey exploring Greece, Turkey, and Italy. Learn the history of the early church and the spread of the gospel. This amazing tour is happening October 19th to the 29th of 2021. To register, contact Inspired Travel. For more information, pick up a travel brochure in the church lobby. Right? I think that music inspires clapping, right? You just feel like there's that awkward transition into the speech part of the service. Welcome to all of you that are here. You made it to the midweek. God is going to refresh us tonight in His Word, and we're excited about that. Uh, You heard Grace tell you over the announcements that VBS begins August 9th. In case you aren't familiar with your calendar because it's summertime, that is this coming Monday. So if you have yet to register your kids, you better do so. And if you also have free time and want to help out, I'm certain that uh, your volunteer minutes and hours would be much appreciated. I know they're going to decorate the church this Sunday right after second service starting at 1230. So if you can carve out some time maybe to help with that, they would appreciate it. And also, since we're plugging uh, kids' ministry, I was informed last week that we had over 50 kids in Awana, which is a very good thing, uh, but we only had two teachers and then a handful of uh, helpers and and, uh, uh, teenagers, and that's not a good thing, you know? So uh, I I am just letting you know that in case there has been perhaps a prompting on your heart that, you know, hey, there might be something around here to do, there is. There is. There always is. So um, be that as it may, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 19 tonight. If you have your Bible, you can open it there. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we would love to pass one off to you so you can follow along with us in our study tonight as we go through 2 Samuel. 
And what I'm going to do is I am going to go ahead and pray, and, uh, and then I'm going to begin the service. So we are, did I say 19? I don't know where we are. I, I know where, what I'm teaching on, and it is what's next. It's 18, 2 Samuel 18, and let's pray. Father, we just come to you, Lord, and uh, we just, again, thank you, Lord, for your word. And so we ask you now, Father, that our hearts would be opened, that your spirit would move in, in us, Lord, and that we would hear your voice very clearly, God, as you would uh, open up the truth of, of your love to us and that you would reveal mysteries, Lord, tucked away in the pages and lines of, of your word that it's just the fingerprint of God. And so I ask you, Lord, tonight that you'd open every heart. And I want to pray especially tonight for those that are uh, maybe new to the Bible uh, that are new to your word and, and are just discovering, Lord, how living and powerful it is. I ask tonight uh, an extra measure of blessing and revelation upon them, Lord, as uh, we see just this glorious picture that you've laid out before us here. So be with us now, Lord, and we just thank you for giving us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the great challenges of being a follower of Jesus in really in any age is living in a physical world and living for a spiritual one. <laughs> and the reason is because one of those is physical, it's visible, it's tangible, and we have all of the software and hardware and the operating system to relate to it. We're physical beings in a physical world, and so uh, we're in that world, we understand it. But once we become followers of Jesus... Now we're called into a spiritual world, and we're not just called into it, but we're called to live for it, to make it primary in our lives. And that becomes very challenging because the spiritual world is invisible, it's intangible, and it's very much less observe or discernible, and it's unknown to us. We don't come with the software, the hardware, and the operating system to know how to uh, really live and understand that realm. Now, that challenge of living in a physical world, yet living for a spiritual one, is not just a, a challenge for humanity. It's also a challenge for divinity. It's a challenge for God. Because God has made the promise that he's going to reveal himself, that he's going to communicate and impart truth and reality and understanding concerning this world that he has now called us into, this kingdom to which we are now citizens. And so there's a challenge on God's part as well. Now, when Jesus came into the world, he came physically to reveal and proclaim a kingdom that exists spiritually. And so Jesus was always trying to impart truth and give understanding. And Jesus was very clear in his delivery because he understood both realms. He was able to say, I came from God. I know where I've come from. I will go to God. I know where I'm going and I know where I am. So Jesus was very clear in the way that he was imparting spiritual things. Okay. However, he wasn't able usually to get through to people with spiritual things because of that challenge. So he used parables. He would tell stories that were intended to teach that would give people a parallel, some way that they could grasp a truth that's invisible or spiritual. 
However, when he told the parables, usually he was either not understood or he was misunderstood because it's hard for the physical to grasp the spiritual. When Jesus spoke outrightly and just laid truth out plainly, even then there were nodding heads and yet there were empty minds. They would say, yeah, we get it. But then they would say something and he'd say, you don't get it. And he was constantly trying to communicate spiritual things to physical people. Now, again, the reason for that is because humanity in this physical realm, we do not come naturally with the hardware, software, and operating system that's necessary for us to comprehend and understand spiritual things. And it wasn't until after the cross and the resurrection that God, in a sense, imparted the update. He gave an update to humanity. He equipped us with the hardware, software, and the operating system to now be able to discern an invisible spiritual realm in a physical realm that we live in now, okay? So God gave what Jesus called the Holy Spirit, which is God's spirit imparted into us enabling us now to comprehend and understand. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, he said these words. He said, for verily I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things that you see and have not seen them and to hear the things which you hear and have not heard them. He was basically saying that, listen, even the prophets of the Old Testament didn't fully grasp and understand the things that they were saying. They didn't have the equipment to do it. But Jesus said, Matthew 13, verse 16, he said, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Speaking of those people that are able to comprehend those spiritual truths. The apostle Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, as it is written, eye has not seen, that's physical, ear has not heard, that's the sense of hearing physically, neither have entered into the heart of man, that's human understanding, the things which God has prepared for those that love him. Paul would say it's impossible for physical humanity to understand things spiritually. However, he would go on to say, verse 10, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And so God gives to those who put their trust in Jesus the gift of his spirit inside of them, which then equips and enables them or us, if we believed, to comprehend and understand spiritual things. Now, John Bunyan, who was a theologian and a pastor back in the 1600s, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And in The Pilgrim's Progress, he referred to the Holy Spirit as the interpreter. He's never specifically called that in the Bible, but I love that idea, that picture, because that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does inside of our lives. He interprets and he translates, in a sense, the invisible, untangible, incomprehensible spiritual things into something that we can understand so that we can comprehend the spiritual, though we are in the physical. He interprets for us, okay? Now, all right, one of the ways 
that God crosses the barrier from the spiritual into the physical in order to impart spiritual truth to us is in the Bible, he uses patterns, parables, types, and shadows. Those are all words taken right out of the Bible. And that is that God will take a circumstance, an experience, a story, an item. He'll take something and he'll use it to illustrate something that's invisible, something that's eternal, something that's heavenly in order for us to understand it, okay? Jesus would say, that's why I speak in parables, because I want you to understand with a context that you have something that you cannot see. I use parables. The writer of Hebrews, as Pastor Bobby started taking us through the book of Hebrews, you're going to see as you go through it that the book of Hebrews is full of interpretations of the symbols and types and shadows and figures that God has used throughout Bible history, man's history, to reveal who he is to those of us that can't see. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, the first eight verses, the author describes the whole Old Testament worship setup. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table, the candlestick, the incense, all those things you read about in Exodus, you're like, what in the world's going on there? And then the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 9, that all of those things, the Old Testament things, that they were a figure of things that exist in the heavens. Do you know what a figure is? It's a diorama. Remember when you had to make those in school, a shoebox, and you had to make a little model of something, like an Indian village or whatever it might be? You know, that's, that's what that was. God says, I've given you a model of something. It's a figure of what exists in the heavens. In chapter 9, verse 23, he calls it a pattern. You understand a pattern? It's just a smaller version of something greater. In chapter 10, verse 1, he calls all of those things a shadow. And what a shadow does is it gives you a form or an outline, but it lacks the dimension and the detail of the actual substance. And God says that all of those things were shadows of things that exist in more detail in greater ways in the heavens. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is that hall of faith where God kind of goes through and he talks about everyone in the Old Testament and how they believed in him and how they had faith. He talked about how when Abraham offered up his son Isaac and was about to offer him to God out of obedience, but then didn't because God said, no, 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 this wasn't the point. I wasn't asking, I didn't want you to kill him. I wanted to make you understand something. And Hebrews 11, chapter 19 says that that moment when God said, now stop, he said that that was a figure and that in the picture of what was happening there, God was showing how his only son, as Abraham had an only son, would be risen from the dead. In other words, the whole story was a parable being lived out in real life experience, God using it to impart to a man his love through Jesus. And it's an incredible thing to realize that God has the ability and the will and the resources to do it. And he does, and he did, okay? Now, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when he was walking with two disciples after his resurrection, they didn't know who he was because he had come to them in another form. 
And it says that he began to talk to them and explain to them everything from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Malachi and how all of it was pointing to and illustrating and revealing Jesus, all of it. And they said our hearts were burning within us when he talked to us and he opened the scriptures to us. He showed them that it was all about Jesus. Even in Genesis, Exodus, all the way through, it was all about Jesus. Jesus would say to a group of Jews, he would say while he was on earth, he would say, you guys are experts in the Bible, but you miss the whole thing because you don't realize that the scriptures are they which testify of me. They knew the words but they couldn't comprehend what it was really all about. It was all about Jesus. Well, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, well, why this intro about all this for 2 Samuel chapter 18? Here's why. Because 2 Samuel 18 is a segment of the record of David's life and you call it a ministry or his kingship, his administration, and it's history and it actually happened. But it is also a shadow or a pattern of the entire New Testament message. The entire message, really, of the entire Bible. And it comes to us in three segments that exist in this chapter, all part of the same story. There's three things. You can write them down if you want to. But there's a conflict, there's a conclusion, and then there's a commission. Those are the three points tonight in the study. So let's look at it. Let's begin with the conflict beginning in verse 1. Watch this. It says that David numbered the people that were with him, and he set captains over thousands and captains over uh, over hundreds. And David sent forth one-third of the people under the hand of Joab and a third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. And the people answered, You shall not go forth, for if we flee away, they won't care for us. Even if half of us die, they won't care for us. But now you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore now it is better that you secure or help us out of the city. You can't go into the battle because you're the flag, okay? You don't bring the flag into the battle. They want you dead. You stay here. And the king said unto them, what seems you best I will do. And the king stood by the gate side and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. So it was a great company of people that were with David. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, the generals, the three commanders of these three battalions, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, the servants of David now, against Absalom and the defectors from Israel that have aligned themselves with Absalom, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, wherefore, or where, the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. So David's men get the upper hand, and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men, for the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, 
and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Okay, so the conflict that we have been tracking with as we follow David has now come to a point where there's actually a clash. If you're just joining us for the first time, David is the rightful king over the kingdom that's been established by God. But yet there's an ambitious and self-willed, and we also heard very attractive and charismatic young son of the king named Absalom, who garners a following of the men of Israel that were not of David's tribe, and he launched a rebellion, a coup against his father. And so David, not wanting to see bloodshed in Jerusalem, he quickly abnegates the throne, and those that were followers with him went with him, and he leaves the city of Jerusalem, even crossing the Jordan River and leaving the country for not his own safety's sake primarily, but really just to kind of see and understand and, and, and get a grasp for what's about to happen. And so there's a, an exchange of intelligence. There's information given to Absalom and counsel. He makes a decision for a battle plan. David's spies bring him word to let him know what's really going on. And now the battle comes, the conflict actually ensues here in these eight verses of chapter 18. And what we read is that it happened in a very intense environment where even the woods claimed the lives of men, not just the battle, and that David's men gained the upper hand over the troops and tribes that were with Absalom. And so here is this thing that's happening. Now, the conflict comes to a clash. David is winning. And as it is historically, as it happened with David and Absalom, where there was a conflict of kingdoms, a clashing of kingdoms, so it also happens spiritually. It's a shadow. It's a picture. It's a type. And we're going to see it more clearly in a moment. But it's between the powers of the fallen world system and the spiritual heavenly world system that God is the king over the heavenly realm. Now, what, what do I mean by that? The Bible tells us that in the beginning, when God put Adam in the garden, and he gave him the command that he was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that in that day there was a serpent, a fallen angel, whose name was Lucifer. We know him as Satan. And he tempted Adam to disobey God, and Adam did what Satan suggested. And when he did, Satan, in a sense, stole authority from man over the planet that God had put him on. And in a sense, he murdered man and that he tempted him to do the thing that God said would cause his demise and his death. And so there was a king who launched a coup, a prince who launched a coup and took over authority in the underworld. And ever since that day, there has been a conflict between the world that we are in down here and the world that's invisible to us, that God is king over, the kingdom of heaven spiritually. There has been a conflict in it, okay? And that's been going on ever since that day. Now, Satan is a liar and a murderer. Jesus said it. He grabbed control. He deceived humanity. And just like the followers of Absalom in the story, 
Many of the people in the world that are in this clash, they have no idea what's really going on. Just like we learned last week that the people that were with Absalom, they didn't really even understand what was happening. They were kept in the dark, but they were on a side either way. Now, understand Jesus told us that this battle is real. He said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, he said that for since the days of John the Baptist, that is the days of the prophets, there has been a conflict. It says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. All right, this is a reality. This is a struggle. There is a conflict that's going on in our midst. And even the environment wherein this battle takes place is hostile. Now, if you guys are citizens of this earth, and you understand where the spiritual battle happens, you know this is a hostile environment. And there are many victims that fall down just because of the environment that we're in. They get sucked up in the things of this world, the conflicts of this world, and there are casualties just because of being in this world. So there's a conflict. Now, every conflict must come to a conclusion, right? There's got to be a winner. There's no draw in this battle. There's going to be a winner. And so even this conflict between David and Absalom now comes to a conclusion. Watch this in verse 9. It says that Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak tree. And his head caught hold of the oak... And he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. Now, you guys, if you've been with us, we were told when it was describing Absalom's good looks that he had great man hair, and that it was so good he would only cut it once a year, and that it weighed something like five pounds once he cut it all off. Like, he just had this gift of hair, you know, and, and now this gift of hair that was his crown jewel now becomes his, well, it becomes his demise, right? Because he goes under this tree and his hair gets caught in the boughs of this oak and the mule that he was walking on keeps going. And so he's just standing there kind of holding his head, kicking his feet, you know, I kind of picture a clown, you know, and he's hanging there in this tree and it says that a certain man saw it and told Joab, Joab is David's general, and said, behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, and behold, you saw him? And why did you not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a girdle. In other words, I would have given you 10 silver coins and a new shirt if you had just killed him. Why didn't you, why didn't you just kill him, smite him to the ground? That's, that's a great prize, by the way. If anybody ever offers you 10 pieces of silver in a, in a shirt, <laughs> the guy's like, yeah, why didn't I? He tells us why, verse 12. It says that the man said unto Joab, though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, yet would I not put forth my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Listen, we know David doesn't want him dead. He said, Bring him alive. And he says, You can pay me whatever you want to pay me, but the king's going to find out about this. He says, Otherwise, I should have wrought falsehood against my own life, for there is no matter hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. You would have 
thrown me under the bus in your first breath there in the presence of David. I like this guy. I mean, Joab was no, uh, no wimp, you know, and he wasn't the kind of person you stand up to. And I like this guy that he just was like, no way. So Joab said, I may not tarry thus with you. Ah, get out of my sight, he says. And he took three darts in his hand and he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And 10 young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. So Joab starts it, the 10 armor bearers finish it, and Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing after Israel for Joab held back the people. Joab knows the conflict is over. The aggressor is dead. The person who's leading the rebellion is gone. There's no further need to kill anybody. It's over with. And so they took Absalom and they cast him into a great pit in the wood and laid him in a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Everybody goes home. And just as an aside, that means something, verse 18, it says, Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, a monument, which is in the king's dale, for he said, here's the reason, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance, and he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called unto this day Absalom's place." Okay, so the conflict comes to a conclusion as the servants of David see Joab, I'm sorry, Absalom hanging in a tree. They give word to Joab who takes the three darts and he finishes him off in this way. Now, I want you to just think about the death of Absalom and how it took place. It says that Joab took three arrows or three darts He pierced him in the heart while he was hanging in the tree yet alive. He was then slain by the ten. Through his death, the war is over. There's a conclusion to the conflict and a solution to the problem. And then he's thrown in a tomb and stones are rolled over him. And we're told that he has no kids, but a pillar was erected in his name. Now, historically speaking, this is a tragic end for the son of David, Absalom. And it's really the the third son that now David has lost because essentially, as God said, it's going to be repaid to you because of what happened with Bathsheba. He lost the baby that that Bathsheba had originally uh, conceived. He then lost his son Amnon, who had raped his daughter Tamar because Absalom killed him. And now he loses Absalom in this battle. It's a tragic end to Absalom. And really, it's the beginning of David's return. It's the end of the conflict And the conflict ends, listen to me, the conflict ends, Holy Spirit, illuminate minds, illuminate hearts, give understanding of spiritual truth. The conflict ends when the son of David rides in on a mule, is then hung on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth. Three darts are used against him. Ultimately, his heart was pierced by a soldier. He was slain by 10 servants 
His body was thrown in a tomb of earth, and then it was covered by a stone or by stones. I don't know if that sounds like anything you've ever heard before. I don't know if there's a melody line in that that sounds like something that you've heard, something that rhymes a little bit with something that happened to another son of David. Because it kind of sounds, it kind of sounds like what happened to Jesus. It kind of sounds very similar to what happened to him. It sounds like a battle move that God made in sending his son into the world. And it kind of rhymes. And it kind of sounds similar, but at the same time, that doesn't really, because there's a big difference between the son of David, Absalom, and the son of David, Jesus, a big difference. And it's kind of like when someone writes poetry and they're trying to make it rhyme, but it doesn't really rhyme, but you know what they were trying to do, but it doesn't really work because there's not really many words that rhyme with again. And so they say again. You know, and it doesn't really work because, because Absalom was a rebel and Absalom was evil and Absalom was a defector and Absalom was a wretched, murderous, lying man who deserved to die. And, and Jesus, the son of David, was the exact opposite. He was the son of God. He was perfect and righteous and no fault was found in him. And he wasn't a rebellious man or launching a coup. He was, God's, he was God's righteousness. He was the express image of the invisible person of God. They were such opposites. This couldn't possibly be intended by God to be a shadow of Christ because it just doesn't fit. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It, doesn't, it, it does. It works because there's a plot twist. See, God had a conclusion to the conflict that exists in the spiritual realm. The conflict between Satan and his grabbing control over humanity and over the world. And, and God in his rightful place. And Jesus, who is the rightful king, who is not currently in that position. God had a conclusion for that conflict that didn't involve crushing his enemies. See, David could have done that. David could have stayed in Jerusalem and he could have snapped his fingers and said, Joab, Abishai, Ittai, all of you, go. But David said, no, no, no. If I do that, there's going to be a lot of innocent lives lost. And I care about innocent lives. And I don't want innocent lives to be lost. And so David didn't do it that way. And God didn't do it that way. God didn't solve the problem of sin and Satan by saying, I'm just going to crush the whole earth and wipe the whole thing out and start over. He could have. He had the power to do it, but he didn't do it. He did it in a different way. What way? John chapter 3, verse 16. It's the most famous verse in the Bible and the most famous quote in the world. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you hear what he said? He said that God gave his only son. And there is a pause after that phrase. God gave his only son. There's an explanation that's left out of that sentence, of that verse and if you stop and think about it, you, you, you would say, God gave his son how? God gave his son for what? 
What does that mean that God gave his son? See, listen. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there was an exchange of authority when Satan deceived Adam and Adam lost his purity. Satan took man's authority and man was given Satan's impurity. That's why Adam is defiled. That's why all of us are born into this world in the condition that we are. That's why we come into this world spiritually blind and with a tendency towards sin. And for some reason, this strange rebellion towards a God that we don't even know. Because we're born into this world with this defilement that was given to us at that moment. But when God gave his son Jesus, and Jesus came into the world as fallen humanity, yet perfect in his divinity, there was another exchange that happened in another garden. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, as Jesus was about to go to the cross and suffer and bleed and die, a cup was placed in front of him that he clearly didn't want to take and drink. He didn't want to choose the wine in front of him. It was that, that, that sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> Princess Bride, I know that's an old movie now. Nobody gets it anymore, you know. But there was a cup in front of him that he asked three times. He said, is there another way? I don't want to drink what's in this cup. But he took that cup, and in that cup was the defilement, the impurity, the iniquity, the sin of all of humanity. And Jesus took that cup, and he drank it. The prophet Jeremiah says, to the dregs. He went all the way. He drank all of it. The night before, he had given a cup. I don't know if you remember the communion supper, but he said, take this cup. This is the cup of my blood. And he gave that one away. And he took for himself the cup of man's impurity and he drank it down completely. And in that moment, when Jesus drank the cup in the garden of Gethsemane, the son of David, Jesus, changed teams. Jesus became the defilement of humanity in that moment. Jesus became, as it were, Absalom, the rebel, the murderer, the liar, the deceiver, the defector, the unrighteous one. He drank man's impurity. God gave his son to drink the impurity of humanity and to absorb our impurity and then also the punishment that our impurity deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. It says that he has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. In other words, in that moment, Jesus was made sin. So God so loved the world that he gave his son to be defiled, debased, to be condemned. God gave his son to become as Absalom. And from that garden, Jesus left, and he was pierced with three nails, and he was hung on a tree suspended from heaven, between heaven and earth. Ultimately, he was pierced through the heart by a soldier, and out came blood and water. Ultimately, killed by 10. You know, don't ever skip over the details. Why does it say 10 of Joab's armor bearers 
surrounded Absalom and killed him. Why? The number 10. Do you know what the number 10 represents in the Bible? It's the number of the law. There were 10 commandments. And ultimately, it was the letter of the law coupled with the defilement that was now in Christ that caused him to be slain. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3 that the letter kills, Jesus killed ultimately by the very law that he came to fulfill. Jesus then buried in a tomb of earth with a stone rolled over it. And amazingly, it was in that moment that the Son of God, the Son of David, defiled by the cup that he willingly drank, but he didn't deserve, buried in a tomb, it was in that moment that the conflict concluded. It was in that moment that the solution for sin and the battle between heaven and earth and the authority of Satan was crushed, not by God saying, I'm stronger and I'll squash you, but by God saying, I love you and I'll die for you. And he entered into the realm of humanity and created a solution through the person of his son. Isn't it interesting? It tells us in verse 18 of back in our text that, that Absalom had no son, but that he erected a pillar that was called after his own name. Do you know that that's like Jesus also? Because we know that Jesus had no kids. On, you know, you can argue that out with Da Vinci people and all. You know, Jesus had no kids. He has no descendants. But what, did it, what does it say? Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It says that he birthed the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. That even Jesus, who had no kids, but he erected a pillar in remembrance of himself. Do you realize that this is the gospel? The gospel, Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. It says this, you can put it up on the screen. It says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. So that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. God made a solution. God made a way to reconcile humanity, guilty humanity, to himself through the person of his son and then giving us his spirit so that we could know him and walk with him and be in relationship with him. God sent Jesus to absorb the punishment for our sin and now he invites us to receive the price that's been fully paid by him. And the conclusion of it really is Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Where the Apostle Paul says, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God concluded the conflict by crushing his own son in our place. But now, there's another thing. There's a commission. Because now that there's been a conclusion to the conflict, the message of the conclusion has to be brought back to the place it belongs. And so there's a commission now because the message has to go out that the war is over. The message has to be relayed back to the people of God. Word needs to get to David and understand that the message of God's gospel has been put into the mouths of people and it's been given to us to bring it. And so we move from conclusion to commission in verse 19. Watch this. 
It says that then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, he said, let me now run and bear the king tidings how that the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. Now, we've met Ahimaaz. He's one of the sons of Zadok. He's already been employed in this position of messenger. That's been his role, to be a secret courier. And he's young, he has energy, he's excited, and he wants to go and tell David that the war is over. He wants to bring tidings of this, and he's excited, understandably. However, verse 20, Joab said unto him, you shall not bear tidings this day, but you shall bear tidings another day. But this day you shall bear no tidings, and here's why, because the king's son is dead. In other words, listen, there is more to this than just the excitement that the war is over and that you're safe now, okay? This is sensitive information because when David hears this, yes, there's a part of it that's really good news, but there's also a part of it that's gonna crush him intensely. And who tells him the news that he's to hear is of the utmost importance in this situation because of the size and the implications of the message that's going to be brought to him. So verse 21, Joab said to Cushai, different guy, he says, go and tell the king what you have seen. He doesn't have to say much. He knows Cushai. He's of a completely different disposition. He understands the dynamics. He is evidently more mature and more equipped and competent to deliver this type of news. And and in simplicity, Joab is able to just say to him, listen, go and tell the king what you have heard. Testify of what you have seen. That's what you need to do. Your perspective from your experience. And so, It says, uh, he bowed himself and he ran. Now, verse 22. I love this guy. I can relate to him, a younger version of myself. Verse 22. Then said Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, but howsoever, let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushai. I want to go too. Please let me go. And Joab said, why? Why will you run, my son? Now listen to the reason. Seeing that you have no tidings ready. You don't understand the fullness of the message. You don't understand the weight of the intelligence that needs to be brought in the way that it needs to be communicated. You're not ready, what he basically says to him here, to do this. So why do you want to go? And so, verse 23, Howsoever, he said, let me run. I want to go. And he said unto him, run, go. How many parents? We just get out, just go, do it. Stop. Okay, you win. Okay. And Joab says, fine, run. So Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and he outran Cushai. And so here's Cushai, the older, mature guy. He's got a bad knee and a bad hip and he's kind of just working his way, plodding along. And Ahimaaz is like the road runner. He was like, yeah, I'll get there first. You know, it becomes this uh, match to see who can get, get it to David first. And it says that David sat between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall and lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, then there's tidings in his mouth. If he's alone, he's a messenger. And he came apace and he drew near. 
And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, Well, he also brings news. And the watchman said, Methinketh, I think these were old English people, the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimaaz. I recognize that gate. I know that look. The son of Zadok. And the king said, Well, he's a good man, and he comes with good news. And Ahimaaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which has delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, This is what's of concern to David. Is the young man Absalom safe? David not overly concerned about who's going to sit on the throne or the status even of his men. He wants to know if Absalom is alive. And Ahimehaz answered, well, um, uh, when Joab sent the king's servant, when, when Joab sent me, I, I didn't ask to come. I didn't, I didn't want this mission. But when, when Joab sent me and thy servant, I, I saw a great tumult, but I don't know what it was. I, I know something happened, and I saw people happy, but I don't know that I fully understand and fully grasp really what happened. And so the king said unto him, turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. You sit over here on the shelf. Okay? Now, behold, verse 31, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all them that rose up against you. He starts the message the same way. And the king said unto Cushai, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise up against you to do you hurt, be as that young man is. A sensitive, understanding, soft way to let the king know that Absalom is indeed dead. He does it in simplicity, he does it in sincerity, and he does it with sensitivity. Do you, do you understand that when you bring the message of the gospel to people, that you are bringing them intensely sensitive information? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like, well, it's just glad tidings, and it is glad tidings. The war is over. The solution has been made. But not everyone can reach everyone. Do you understand that? How many of you have ever encountered it that when you try to bring the good news to someone, they don't receive it very well? They don't receive it as good news. <laughs> you know, and we've all experienced that. And what you've got to understand is that there is a level of preparation and, and a level of personality and relatability that has to happen between two people in order for information this sensitive to make an impact. And sometimes you are not the person that's going to reach certain people. And God in his wisdom will send the right people at the right time to reach people in the way that they will bear it, receive it, understand it, internalize it, and respond to it in a way that's effective. And it is God's job to send whom he will send 
those whom he will, to reach those with this message. And it is of the utmost importance. This is a person. When you share Jesus with somebody, when you, that you've received it, you, you know it, the truth is open to you, your eyes have been opened, your life has been changed, everything is different. You have life, you understand purpose, and you try to bring what you have to someone. And to you and me, it's good news, and there's a zeal and an excitement about what we're bringing. But to the person that's listening, you're dropping a neutron bomb on them on the other side of the same coin of salvation. Because when you share Jesus with a person, you're sharing him with a person that has a past, and that past has a context, and that context comes with it, the ability to cope barely with the world that they're living in already. And with that context, there's a boatload of stresses and unanswered questions and pain from the past. And if you don't have concern and sensitivity for those things that a person is going through and thinking through, then your message that is good news to you becomes offensive and useless to them. They're dealing with thoughts of like, I just buried my parents and they didn't believe like you're saying. And now you're telling me that's the only way to God. Well, the implications of what you're telling me right now might be really good for me if I receive it. But what about the people that I care about that I've already buried? And that has to be communicated in a certain way. That has to be done with a certain sensitivity, a certain level of understanding, a certain level of wisdom. It's not always a good news thing. And the call to new life comes with it, comes an implication of a death of the old. And it requires a degree of preparation that goes beyond just giving someone information. It takes character. It takes some experience. It takes some care. I think of the apostle Paul in this because he went through it. Paul was a him as. When Paul first got saved, he was just like you and me. He was excited he was full of energy, and he had knowledge. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And he went into Jerusalem and started dropping bombs. He started to argue and allege and make a case for Christ that no one could stand up against. And they tried to kill him twice, and he had very little effect in the message. And then the apostles had to call him in. They said, come here, come here, come here. Come here. Okay, it's, it's enough for us to try to receive that we're actually talking to Paul the, the Christian killer right now. But you are way too intense. And you have to just figure out what's really going on here. They said, do us a favor. Go home. Read Acts 9. That's what happened. They said, go home, please. You're, 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 you're like a, a fox in the chicken coop here right now, and you're disturbing everybody. Go. And he said, all right. And Paul leaves. And you know what it says? It says, then the churches had rest. <laughs> and, and listen, there are times when the Christian leaves the room, everybody's like, yes. <sighs> and it took seven years of Paul having real life experience. What does it take to provide for myself and for others? What does it take to live this thing out now? I had a lot of knowledge, but I didn't really have the understanding of what it really means and what it really costs and what it really feels like. And I was missing a lot of things. And it took seven years of, you, you stand over there. there. There was a storm. There was a fire. Jesus, stand over there, God said to Paul. And it took seven years 
of life, character, experience, concern for other people. Failure on his own part to realize that not everybody's going to be perfect. For then God to say, okay, now that you've toned down a little bit and you've tasted a little bit of your own failure and you know your own weakness, now I want you to share. Not with the people that you think you're going to share with, but the people that I've prepared you to share with. And I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And he was sent to the Gentiles. Do you understand? There's a commission. Jesus said, go, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There is a commission. But with that commission, there is a level of preparation that is necessary. Because what we are bringing to people is the most sensitive information that they will ever have in their life. It is eternally important that the message be portrayed in a way that does not shut them down, but that gives them a desire to understand. And God is the only one that can work that preparation in the heart and lead us to those people. Cushai brings a completely different message than Ahimaaz, has, and he says it in a way, watch this, that creates an intense and effective response. The close of the chapter, verse 33. It says that the king was much moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept as he went. Now just picture, he's a king. This is a dignified warrior. And he wept as he went. As he walked away, they saw his shoulders bouncing and convulsing. And he said, oh my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God that I had died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I love this chapter because this chapter is the entire New Testament message in a nutshell. Yet, it reveals something to us of the heart of God that you will find nowhere in the New Testament. And that is what was going on in the heart of the Father when Jesus the Son was dying for humanity's sin upon the cross. It never says that God was in heaven looking down at the, I mean, we get the idea that God was just, he was, that was wrath, that was lightning, that was, that was justice, that was the crushing, and God was mad, and, and there was a part of that that was true, because he who knew no sin became sin forth, but on the other side of that, did you hear Jesus in the garden? Did you hear what he said in John chapter 17? He said, Father, glorify me with the glory, the, the fellowship that I had with you from the foundation of the world. There was a communion, a connection, a bond between the Father and the Son. And when Jesus was crushed on the cross, God's justice was met because sin was paid for, but God's heart was broken. My son, my son, my son. But what does that mean? It means that if God was willing to endure that level of grief and separation in the death of his son, because he knew it was the only way that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled to him, it means that he loved you enough to make that level of grief worth it. That's amazing. 
It reveals the Father's heart towards you, expressed through the death of His Son. He chose to do it. Do you get the message? Himahaz didn't quite get the message. But do you get the message? It's not about kingdoms and war and good and evil and religion and beliefs and conflicts and politics. It's about you and God and Jesus and redemption and eternity and love and life. And it's gritty and it's bloody and there's consequences and there are casualties. But when you boil it down, it is this, that God so loved you that he gave his son Jesus to be defiled, debased, and condemned to provide a solution to your conflict and to meet your greatest need. And now he invites you into relationship with him through the offering of his son. And everything that you go through in your life is providing you with a context to relate in love to others in a way that you can make a difference in their life. He's the Lord of all. And listen, David is coming back to Jerusalem. And Jesus is coming back to the world. And he's going to set things right. Father, we just thank you tonight for, for the truth of your word. And I know, Lord, there's deep mystery in the things that are revealed. But yet, Lord, you did it so that we would understand your heart and that we'd fully understand your person and that we'd understand how much you love us. And so I pray tonight, dear Lord, that your Holy Spirit would impart to us the ability to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And that he that did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now with him also freely give us all things? Lord, you tell us that God commends his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners and yet your enemies, at our worst, that it was then that Christ died for us. Oh Lord, I pray for every person hearing the sound of my voice right now that we would fully comprehend how much you love us and how much it meant to you that we would be in relationship with you. So help us, Lord. Help us that are bound in this tangible, physical, visible, conflicted place. Help us, Lord, to comprehend and understand what's invisible and what's eternal what's spiritual. Jesus, be our Lord. Be our God. Be our salvation. Be our captain in our redemption. Be our preparation and our peace. Be our wisdom and our help that we might serve your purpose in the lives of those whom you would choose for us to reach. Father, we thank you so much that this is your heart towards us. May we, Lord, receive it and walk in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. 
To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.